Hello, everybody, and welcome to the October 2018 podcast. Wonderful to have you along as ever. Now, I'm recording this about four days after I came back from a 10-day holiday with my family in the United States. And uh, we had a brilliant time. Um, we, um, we actually started off by flying into Phoenix in Arizona. And from there, we went straight to um, the Grand Canyon, which I'd never been to before. And although I'd seen documentaries about it, you until you actually get there, of course, you don't really truly appreciate the enormity and the scale of the place. It is absolutely awe-inspiring. And the weather, because of the time of year it was, was good, but not absolutely cinderingly hot. And because we are very slightly out of season, in other words, not the peak summer season, it wasn't too crowded, enough to make it feel like it was a, a, a busy sort of attraction, but not so that you had to queue for everything or that people were in the way and preventing you from seeing stuff. So it was, it was really good. And then we went from there. We um, took um, a, a trip through Monument Valley, which is in the Arizonian desert, which was amazing as well. The rock formations there are, well, again, something that I, again, I've seen on documentaries, but the scale of them and, and how arid the whole place and dusty it all is, you don't appreciate it until you actually get there. And then we went from there, we went on and we ended up in Aspen, uh, which in, of course, in the winter is a very popular skiing resort. Wonderful place, really enjoyed it there. And then we spent several days in the Rocky Mountains, traveling at one point across the highest road in the United States, over twelve and a half thousand feet high. And, and it's funny with this altitude thing, because we're so used to being not at altitude, especially in the UK that when you're suddenly you get out of your car and you start to walk anywhere and you feel, God, I'm out of breath. I'm, I'm really putting on weight. I'm so out of condition. Of course, it's not. It's more the fact that you're at a very high altitude and you can't basically you can't breathe. But that was brilliant, too. So we had we had a wonderful time. And um, one of the problems, I think, that when you have a business where magic or otherwise and you are the owner and in my case, you're a one man band is the difficulty of getting everything ready and in a situation with your business so that you can actually go on holiday. I think it's just, this is a problem that many self-employed people feel. You don't like to turn work down because you don't know where the next bit's coming from. But on the other hand, if you don't block out time for a holiday, basically you're never going to have one. In which case, quite frankly, what are you working for? So it kind of, um, it's one of those things that you want to do, but it is nevertheless quite difficult and I always find that I keep trying to get my my inbox as it were empty it's never empty every every day new things arrive but you get it as empty of critical things as you possibly can so that you can actually go away and without feeling that there's a mass of stuff that you should have done before you leave of course remote access to computers and I was able to to connect with my computer from America back at home but you don't want to be doing that too much otherwise you're not really on holiday are you so you have this sort of slight dilemma of putting a few people on hold by quickly sending them emails to say look I'm away at the moment but other than that you know you don't really want to get too involved but it isn't easy to switch off and it's not easy to abdicate all responsibility when you have no one to take up the reins while you're not there but I think it is important to do it because I've come back and, and I do feel refreshed 
uh, enthused again, full of energy, raring to go. Uh, and I'm looking forward to the next few months. So I've got various um, projects and shows and, and various other things that I'm going to be doing, bringing out one or two new releases. So th- th- there's lots of things that I'm looking forward to. And I'm excited about. Uh, and I think it's important, obviously, that uh, every now and again, a break lets you take a step back from all the, the day to day running of the business so that when you do come back to it, you feel right now I'm ready to go again. And that's how I feel now. So, right, new magic season, let's get on with it. When I was a student, I studied uh, for a a single honours degree in German. And because I have that degree, even though it was taken a million years ago, um, I'm still able to read and understand German. And the advantage of this is is that I'm able to read German magazines. And one of the magazines that I receive is Witterswitz Magischer Welt, uh, Magic World. And uh, in the latest issue, he does a a very big spread of a report on the latest FISM, which is is fine, interesting. But the thing that uh, I particularly noticed was his comments about close-up. Um, I'm not sure whether he is a particular fan of close-up in the first place. It may be that he isn't. But nevertheless, what he does say is quite interesting. He wonders whether actually close-up magic has any place at all at major big conventions when the only way for the number of delegates there to watch it is to watch it on a big screen. Surely, he says, you know, if you're watching on a big screen you're not getting the real close-up experience, what's the point? And I think this is something that all big convention organisers have had to grapple with over the years. It's always been the case that an IBM convention, Blackpool, FISM, these type of bigger events where there are large numbers of people in the audience suffer because when they go to present close-up, either they have to have let's say, a relatively small number of people in, but repeat the show several times, um, which is a way that Blackpool used to do it. Uh, And I remember many years ago when I was on the Blackpool bill, I think you performed like six or eight times. It was absolutely exhausting. What it did mean was that you performed to relatively small groups who were literally watching you and the table and not watching a screen. But the so, but assuming that you're not going to do that, then clearly, if you have fifteen hundred registrants, if they're going to watch a close-up show, it is going to have to be filmed and put on a screen. And I'm not really sure that this is not worth doing because I think gradually over the years the sophistication of the filming um, has improved enormously. I think when I think in the the original. Um, early days of trying to broadcast onto big screens the actual quality of the 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 screens themselves wasn't that great and if you had any light in the room or if the angles weren't quite right or the the settings weren't quite right it, it was very hard to see and the quality of the actual filming wasn't always that great but gradually as this has become more common the people producing people like bob hamilton has been doing it for years of course these people have got much more attuned to what's needed the much more experienced the technical stuff that they use is hugely better than it was in the early days 
And so I think actually that the visual experience of watching something on a big screen has improved so much that it that it now at least you could see what's going on. And I think the other thing that's improved is that the performers themselves, well, the savvy ones, let's put it that way, have realised that, OK, this is not a normal close up show. And so therefore, I'm going to be working to a screen. I need to think about this in terms of my material. Because I think some people, when they do very close quarter, sort of close-up magic on a close-up pad, um, when you have a small number of people watching, it's fine, you can misdirect and so on. But if a camera has to focus just on a close-up mat and your hands, unless your technique is really, really good, then the chances are that you are going to inadvertently probably expose some of the methodology if you're using sleight of hand, unless you're very good and you've worked it out clearly and cleverly. So, I mean, there is a a problem there. But so the more savvy performers, I think, have realised, okay, I need to make it slightly more theatrical, almost more parlour-like in its presentation. Even though there are screens that can see in very close, don't necessarily assume that you can then do tiny magic for the reasons I've just explained. So I think if you were to take close-up magic completely out of a convention, since so many people love close-up, it would be a tremendous disappointment. Conventions such as The Session, uh, Andy Gladwin and Joshua Jay's convention that takes place in London in January every every year is a good example of this, where they combine stand-up and parlour and stage with good screen shooting of close-up and sometimes very small close-up. And, and it works well. It, 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 you don't feel cheated. It, it is interesting, particularly, I think, with lecturers where they're giving theory and background as well as just the magic. So I think, yes, uh, I would say to Witterswit, yes, I think close-up does have a place, even though it's on screens, um, because without it, all you would have be left with, you, you would cut out a huge number of performers for a start, you know, international stars who people would pay good money to come and see, but who won't be there if you don't allow any close-up. So that would be detrimental to the convention as a whole. And people love to see close-up, even if they have to watch it on a screen. So I think it's justified. And with the the amount of, as I said, the improvements in technology these days, then the quality of of what is seen is very, very good. So yes, I would say it does have a place. Back in the 1990s, at one of my British close-up magic symposiums, I did an interview with John Bannon, in which we discussed creativity in magic. And I always remember one of the things that particularly struck me at the time was his definition of what creativity actually is. He said, when you're creating new magic, you are basically um, making a series of choices, And the more methods or plots or indeed techniques that you know, the more choices you're giving yourself when you're trying to solve a problem. So if you have an effect that you're trying to create and you know lots of different ways to potentially achieve that, then what you do next is you sift through the various methods. You look at the pros, you look at the cons until you find one that gives you the the best amount array of options and which satisfies what you're trying to do in terms of the effect. Uh, Because I think it's it's interesting that it's a matter of choices uh, because it sometimes can throw up a a bit of a dilemma. 
For instance, let's say you have a trick and you, you, you have a couple of ways of achieving the trick. The first way um, is a very, very practical way of doing it. In other words, when you are out performing commercially, it satisfies many of the criteria that you might put on a method. So perhaps it needs no reset. It's pretty much angle proof. It doesn't require you to carry lots of extra gimmicks or anything like that. And and it can be performed very close to people without too much bother. However, the only slight caveat to it is that despite of all that, the method is not as strong as it might be. Now, there is a stronger method and you can think of what that method is as well. But the trouble with the stronger method is it's a bit angly and therefore it's not so commercial. It requires an extra gimmick, perhaps. Um, and of course, it may be that you can't repeat it very easily. You know, it needs a reset so you can't repeat it immediately. But the method, if you use it, is stronger. It might be, for instance, that the more practical method uses, let's say, a gimmick, but the gimmick can't be examined. Whereas the stronger method uses sleight of hand with no gimmick, but the sleight of hand has risk involved or bad angles. You see what I'm trying to say here? So now you're left with this dilemma. What am I going to do? Am I going to have a really strong method, but that has got a lot of dangers attached or that is not practical for the commercial purposes that I actually want to use it for? Or shall I go for the more practical method, but which where it produces an effect that is not quite as strong? Um, and, and this is the sort of balancing that can go on. I know, I know I've been through this several times with things. Oh, I just don't know which one to do. The, the, the sort of pragmatic side of me wants to take the practical one. But I know that if I go down this other route, then I'll have a, perhaps a stronger piece of magic that will make more impact. Mm, what to do so what do you do um, if you had a choice of the two what would you decide I think for me most of the time I would unless it's a very weak method in which case I wouldn't use it at all but I would tend to go for the more practical because I am a commercial performer that's what I do I go out and earn money entertaining people in commercial situations and I, I need to have tricks that fit with the performing circumstances. And sometimes sleight of hand or more intricate setups, they just simply aren't, I'm just not able to do them. They just don't work in those circumstances. But it's a shame sometimes because, uh, and there can be a situation, I suppose, where if you're doing a one-off parlor show and you want to use the trick you might use the stronger method because you're only doing it once you can control the angles and you can get away with it whereas if you're doing table hopping and you want to use the same trick you go for the the more practical but not quite so strong method interesting thought though isn't it you know here we are making choices you might think it's cut and dried but in fact it may not be it's interesting to note that magic uh and magic acts generally are still being very popular on Britain's Got Talent and America's Got Talent. And in fact, in, in the last week or so, Shin Lim has just won America's Got Talent. And um, I hadn't seen, obviously, well, I say obviously, I hadn't actually caught up with any of the performances that Shin Lim did. 
But um, once I'd heard that he won, I went onto YouTube and I was able to watch most of them, all except the semi-final, which for some reason they weren't able to uh, to include. And I was really struck because uh, by the type of magic that he does, because it's not commercial magic, but it's wonderful, visual, strong, lay people fooling, actually magician fooling too, but certainly lay people fooling magic. What he does, he manages in his presentation, I think, even though most of it is done to music. There are There is some talking, but uh, in fact, in the thing he did in the final, there was a lot of talking, but on the others, there wasn't so much. Uh, and he used visual effects of things disappearing, changing colour, transforming, transposing, and so on. Very, uh, very, very well done. But actually, he gives it a level of importance, which... I think often with close-up magic in particular, we don't tend to do. We, we, if you think about Richard Jones, when he won Britain's Got Talent, and you think of his style, his style is very, it's very English. It, it's patter-based. It's sort of mildly amusing. It, it, it's not dramatic, really. Whereas Shin Lim's approach is, it's like stage magic, in terms of its, you know, smoke and almost not quite wind blowing through his hair, although he does flick his hair quite a bit to a, in a sort of slightly affected way. But he he brings that sort of theatrical thing to the close-up table or to close-up magic. And, and, and of course, he does mainly uh, in card magic. He brings it to that in such a way that it gives the card magic a level of importance that card magic doesn't normally have at all. It's It's quite incredible, really. And I think competitions like the Britain, Britain's Got Talent, America's Got Talent are the absolutely perfect showcases for this type of visual, impactful magic. You, you couldn't take a lot of this stuff out and do it anywhere uh, under normal circumstances, and nor should you try to. Although I do note that um, because of the way that and how great it looks on television, a lot of the magic that is being sold to the man in the street, the magician in the street, if you like, often is very quick, visual, magical snippets almost. The sort of thing that Shin Lim would do as part of his act, but which really and truly don't or can't be fitted into a normal act anywhere else. If you're working on television or you want to do some stuff on YouTube of your, for yourself, then yes, do it. But if you want to have practical magic, not so much. I don't think it's going to work. But I'm really pleased to see, though, that that lay people do seem to love this. And I, I think vi these visual vanishes, open-handed, sort of apparently with no cover, vanishes, smoke appearing under cards, uh, all this type of stuff, It it is. it looks like camera tricks a lot of the time, even though it isn't. And it gives magic an importance, a theatricality and an impact that normally it doesn't, close-up magic in particular doesn't have. I think stage illusions can have this type of impact, but close-up doesn't normally. But the way that Shin Lim's did it in his, in his performances, I think it does gain the same sort of level. I think that's why the lay audiences go nuts for it and why he was so successful with it. Are you the type of magician who values advice or are you simply a trick-based person who, when you make a purchase, 
if you can't see something tangible in your hand, some clever gimmick or prop of some sort, then you don't see the value of an idea. I, I ask this because um, the other day I got a very unusual request. Um, a customer of mine who I've known for many years, he contacted me and he said he'd been out of magic for a little while and he come, was coming back into magic. And he said he wanted to be um, able to go out and start to do more walkabout magic. And he saw that I did a lecture called Going Walkabout, which is obviously entirely dedicated to the subject that he's interested in. And first of all, he asked me, was I doing it anywhere local to him? And I wasn't. So then he said, would, if he paid me the full lecture fee, would I come and do it just for him? So I agreed to do that. I've never been asked in all the I did. I've been lecturing since 1978. I've never been asked by anybody to come and do a one on one private performance of a lecture. But for this particular person, the the um, benefit to him was huge because although I went to his house and, and I did the lecture for him, it was really more the conversations that we had as, as a result of this. I'd start to do the lecture and then he would ask a question. We could go off at a tangent. I could answer or talk about things that were specifically of interest to him. Questions and, and ideas that he might have had. We were able to bat back and forth. It, it was great. I really enjoyed it and I know he did too. And it was interesting to me because for him, he was prepared to pay a full lecture fee just to have me come and talk to him for a couple of hours because for him it was the value of the advice and the, the way it would short track what he needed to know and the way that he could ask questions personally to me and we could chat about it and I could I, once as I got to know what he was interested in I could start to tailor what I said knowing more about what he was particularly interested in. So it, it worked well for both of us, I think. And, and we had a really good time. We went out for lunch first and then we got on with the lecture. And, and it was absolutely splendid. And it was good fun. And, and I, I, I'm sure he got a lot out of it. And that it will help him to, to get on and do the walkabout that uh, that he wants to do. But it but it blowed up this point, doesn't it? That, that advice... Because at one point I said to him, oh, I've got... You know, because there are tricks involved in this lecture. And I was talking a little bit about some of the tricks I was going to do. He said, well, he said, it's fine. He said, yeah, let's we'll do some of the tricks, of course. But he said, but to be honest with you, it's the advice that I'm really interested in. I've got lots of tricks, but I am more interested in the advice. So for him, this is the point I'm trying to make, that for him, the value of the lecture was in the advice, not in the magic itself. And, and in many ways, this is where um, uh, I think my eClub Pro online club scores. It's full of people who are interested. Yes, there's lots and lots of magic and every month new magic is added. So if you want to just learn tricks, you can. But I think, and the reason I started it all, that the bedrock of eClub Pro is the fact that it, it is an advice-based resource. And no matter what level of magic you are, whether you're an experienced professional and you're looking for sort of um, detailed marketing advice, or whether you're a beginner and you're interested in what's the best move to do so-and-so, that type of advice at both ends of the scale, eClub Pro delivers. That's that's why, I, as I say, I put it together in order to give me a format in which to um, provide my experiences and experience to others who are interested in hearing it. 
And and so if if you are somebody who values advice, because let's face it, there are millions of tricks, and you you can get um, online any number of versions of any number of different tricks. That's the easy part. The difficult part, in my view, is to get solid professional advice that will help you to then go out and do that magic effectively in commercial settings. Uh, or not even necessarily in commercial settings, just go out and when you perform for people, do it properly and do it well. And there are very few people, I think, who uh, are in a position such as I am to provide that help. And so if you are somebody who wants advice, consider eClub Pro. Either that or have me come and do a personal lecture for you. I don't mind which you do. Or do both. Even better. But certainly think about advice. Advice can make all the difference between whether you're a good performer or a distinctly average one. It's not necessarily the magic that will make that. It is the way you perform. And so you need advice and help, I think, in order to help to maximise the skills that you have. When you send a confirmation for um, a commercial show, do you include a cancellation clause in that? By this I mean, do you, if the booker for any reason cancels the booking within a week, two weeks, a month, whatever you decide, before the, the, the event was due to take place, if they do that, then they are required to pay, according to your cancellation clause, a percentage of the fee. It might be 25% or 50%, again, whatever you designate. And that when the person accepts the booking, they understand that this will be the case. Do you include one of those? Um, I've, I never have. And I, I have this theory about cancellation clauses that they are, in fact, an overcomplication and set a slightly unpleasant feel about the person who, for the person who you are going to entertain because if they think that well if I cancel this guy is going to take money off me even though he's not done anything it perhaps doesn't set quite the right feel for the type of person that you are are you only interested in the money then you see in my experience and I've been I spent decades doing shows paid shows I've had actually very few cancellations and I think the reason is that Firstly, when people are having an event, they're excited about the event. And when they book entertainment, when they book you to do a show for them, they don't, I think most people, once it's booked and signed and sealed and they know it's set, they're looking forward to their party or their event. They're looking forward to seeing your magic. The last thing in their mind is, well, now I'm now that I've got somebody booked, I think I'm going to look around and see if I can find somebody cheaper so I can cancel the first guy at the last minute. I don't think that is in 99.9% of people's minds. The job is done and they just don't think about it until you actually turn up and do the show. So to put a cancellation clause in, it kind of makes them look like, well, of course, if you're going to do the dirty on me, why is this something happens to you regularly? Might be the thought that the booker thinks, oh, that's odd. The other thing is that um, on the few occasions when I have had cancellations, as far as I can judge, they have been for genuine reasons. You know, as I say, people don't book a party with the view of cancelling it or changing it necessarily. But I have had bookings, for instance, for weddings that are booked a couple of years in advance. And in one particular case, uh, it was cancelled a year before the wedding was due to take place because the couple split up. They decided not to get married at all. 
Now, to me, it would be, if it's a year ahead, then the, probably the cancellation clause wouldn't kick in anyway. But if you did that, so, well, I'm sorry, no, you've cancelled, I want 50% of the money. A, are you ever going to get that money out of them? Well, good luck with that. Le- legally, do you have, although you have a piece of paper on which you said there is a cancellation clause and they've accepted it, are you really going to try and take them to court to enforce it? Is it worth it for the amount of money? I would suggest it isn't. So in that case, if you're not prepared to pursue somebody through the courts, if they, if they refuse to pay your cancellation clause, why do you have a cancellation clause? It's not worth it, is it? The way I've always worked is uh, I, I don't get paid on the day. I get paid um, no later than seven days before the party or event is due to take place. And I get paid in full. Now, irrespective of the type of show, that's what happens. Those are my terms and conditions. If, for any reason, within that week after they've paid me, there is a cancellation, I actually return the money. I would return the money. Um, because that late, I would suggest, there are good reasons. They may have fallen on, on financial hard times and they just simply now can't afford you. Uh, and I have sympathy for that. You know, I mean, I don't want to lose the booking, but I'm not going to get the booking anyway. And I think the bad feeling that it generates if you try and then extract money from people who are in an unhappy situation creates a bad reputation for you and that person will talk to others well call that magician you know he insisted on the whole keeping the whole fee he'd done nothing for it and there's me you know i lost my job i had to cancel the party and he wouldn't give me the money back not good pr is it so that's why i've never in- included a cancellation clause because i have no intention of enforcing anything like that and as i say over the years I've had so few cancellations that it would have been a waste of time anyway. So do you have a cancellation clause? Have you ever thought about whether you would enforce it? Have you ever needed it? Is it really that important? You might like to think about that just in case it isn't. Right. Thank you very much for listening to the October podcast. I hope you found those topics of interest. It's been great to have you along. I really appreciate that. And I look forward to talking to you again next month. Bye for now.